Our purpose at Reasons to Believe is to open people to the gospel by revealing God in science. For more than three decades, we've aimed to fulfill this purpose by encouraging and equipping people with God's truth through resources like books, blogs, videos, and podcasts. As our world changes and becomes increasingly tech-reliant, we are ready and willing to adapt to make Reasons to Believe more accessible than ever. We are thrilled to reintroduce the refreshed Ask RTB app. It's updated and ready for use when you're in need of a brief yet reliable answer to your science and faith questions. Backed by the expertise and research of our scholar team, the app is designed to be an easily accessible tool for you to explore science, faith questions and answers. But you don't need a science degree to appreciate these answers. We did our best to address complicated questions with concise responses. The Q&A content is organized by topic and subtopics, creating an easy browsing experience. Video content so you can learn by watching or listening. Light and dark modes, font size, and spacing options support your reading preference. Each Q&A also features a dig deeper section so you can further your exploration at reasons.org. If you're new to Reasons to Believe, this is where you want to start. If you've been wanting to share RTB with a friend, this is the resource to share with them. With any technology, there will always remain work to be done, and there will always be new questions to answer. So your questions, if not already answered in the app, will be tracked and considered for future content. As you engage with the app, know that your curiosity fuels our scholars' ability to address the questions you, and likely others, are thinking about. We couldn't grow Ask RTB without you. You are truly building this with us. Explore the truth of scripture as you learn how scientific discoveries reveal the God of the Bible. Bring your questions, grow your faith, Download the Ask RTB app in the Apple Store or Google Play today. Hello and welcome to Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink, and I'll be your guide today as we explore topics of abstract objects and quantum mechanics. But before we get into that discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel. Reasons to Believe. Click on the bell icon so that you can be informed of new videos. Learn more about us at reasons.org or go follow us on social media at rtb underscore official. Brian, I'm glad to have you here today. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you find fascinating? Okay. Well, I am uh, from Statesboro, Georgia, and uh, married for almost 20 years, have three kids. Nice. Um, I got interested in, in apologetics and philosophy back in about 2004, uh, master's degrees in um, those areas, philosophy, biblical studies. I'm a chaplain in the Air Force. Oh, very good. Uh, that sounds right. cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I went and got a, a state SES and got a PhD in philosophy of religion. Um, I've been at, at four churches and on church staffs in various, various capacities. So I'm just all over the place, I guess. Yeah, a little bit of an interesting <laughs> and eventful life there. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It's been fun. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. So I'm excited to, to, to have our conversation today because I know you're talking about abstract objects and what are they and do they impinge on God, that sort of thing. So why don't I just give you the floor, talk, uh, kind of tell us what you're interested in, what, what you want to talk about. Okay. So, you know, in being asked to talk about things that are, that are newish or, or new discoveries in this area, I thought about it and I thought, well, philosophers are still debating about things from 2,000 years ago. So I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but things that would relate both to math, actually, as well as, as theology would be these things that, that philosophers now call abstract objects that go back really at least to Plato. And he, he tried to make sense of, well, how can, how can this microphone color be black and that camera stand be black and this tablecloth be black? They all have blackness to them. So how, how can we explain that? How can we explain the notion of justice, where we have various acts of justice, or is there something that, that makes them all the same? How can you and I both be humans, mm -hmm. but we're different beings? And so Plato devised uh, what he called the forms or ideas, and that is that there is some kind of ontologically really existing form 
uh, out there, not really in the material world, mm-hmm. but out there in its own realm or existence that says, okay, everything that's black has a relationship to the form of, of blackness. Everything that's round, everything that's human, everything that's furry, everything, mm-hmm. every, anything. And so uh, he devised this, and it's interesting because... I have a question for you. Sure, go ahead. Would, would Plato have been looking at things in terms of there's this material world and there's something beyond, or is that kind of a more uh, modern way of looking at it? No, that's right. Reimposing. So the, the, the forms wouldn't be material. Okay. They, they are eternal and that, that they weren't created really. Um, they they don't change. They're perfect. They're the perfect archetypal mm, structure okay. for things. So everything circular like this this pop filter here or the top of the, the microphone would, would would be an imperfect copy of the perfect form. So for, for Plato, for example, art was awful because the, the table being round is one step farther from the actual really existing circular form okay. or form of circularity. So if we made uh, – take take you and I, if we made a, a portrait of ourselves, that portrait would be a copy of us. So it would be a copy of a copy. Okay. So that – he didn't like that, that kind of stuff. So yeah, these were immaterial, eternal – uh, forms that that in some way or another, and there's all kinds of debate about how how that how they relate to things. But in some way, they relate to things, whether they're, they're reflections, copies, participations in the form somehow. All right, and that would be with anything, beauty, even math, numbers. So four exists, red exists somewhere. So the the question arises as to well, if those things really are there, and and and, and philosophers are all over the place with these things. Um, how do they relate to God? Now, the, the God question for Plato was is very complicated, and he, mm-hmm. he didn't write in a narrative. He didn't write in a in a kind of a, a dissertational way. He wrote in, in more um, conversational pieces. So it's okay. hard to really nail him down on what he thought on things. All right. But the question is, supposing those things do exist, how do they relate to God? Because God is supposed to be the only being who is necessary, eternal. Mm. He doesn't exist um, because of anything else. He's say, or div- he has what's called divine aseity, and that means that God is is independent of all things besides himself, and he accounts for everything else that exists. So how, how can you account for something else that exists if it also is eternal and necessary? So if you had a form of roundness or redness or whatever, Presumably, this is has some aspect of that aseity that God it, it would, would have. Seem like that that yeah, would be the yeah, idea. Yeah, it would okay. seem like, well, how do you account for... And even propositions would fit this nowadays, because we, we had a whole linguistic shift in philosophy back in the early uh, 1900s, and, and a lot of philosophers would try to, to uh, reduce philosophy to, to language. So uh, propositions mm-hmm. sometimes count as these abstract objects like murder is wrong or two plus two equals four. So these would be said to be necessary and eternal. Well, how can they be necessary and eternal uh, apart from God? So the question okay. is, is, how do these things relate to God? Mm-hmm. And there's different views on that. So you have uh, Platonic theologians or philosophers who took these these forms, as they as they were, with Plato, and quote-unquote Augustine put them in the mind of God, and they're considered divine ideas. Okay. So this notion of, of uh, divine ideas... Uh, ran through a lot of medieval theology and philosophy, and still do. A lot of philosophers today and theologians still hold to the notion of divine ideas. Uh, so there are these form-like things that that do sort of sort of exist, but not really apart from God. But they're somehow grounded in God's own mind, okay. in the sense that, well, I know I, God 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 knows He can create X, Y, and Z. So those X, Y, and Z then are a divine idea of what He could do. Okay. And some philosophers just don't hold to these platonic forms at all, or these abstract objects at all. So if you hold to them in some way, in a, in a realist sense, uh, you're, you're a realist in that mm-hmm. regard. Um, the, the opposite pole to that is nominalism, which says that there, these universals, these abstract things really don't exist on their own. Uh, all that exists are things that I can point to. So, so these things exist in name only, nominalism for, for okay. name. So... Black only exists in black things and, and so forth. So that I, I, the what's running through my mind is, yeah, you talked about, okay, murder is wrong. Mm-hmm. That, okay, that's a that would classify as one of these forms. So how would the nominalist account for that? Because there is no – outside of making a statement murder is wrong, there is nothing you can point to and say, oh, that's what it means. Yeah. This is where it gets a little bit dicey and tricky with, with nominalism. So 
Um, Anomalous was, is going to say that all we have are individual things, individual. And there's different forms of nominalism. You have class nominalism, resemblance <laughs> nominalism. So it just gets as fun as you want it to be. Right. So uh, they would maybe cash this out differently among their own particular strand. But they're going to say ultimately all that exists are particulars. There are no universals. Uh, not even in the mind. So people who right. would, would think that universals exist in the mind, like I, I can have the idea of blackness or, or circularity or whatever, would be more considered a, a conceptualist. Okay. So people who think that only uh, individuals exist, I think have a hard time explaining aspects in, uh, of, of, of reality because I, I do think that the universals exist, at least in, in the mind. But the anomalous also will deny that there are natures. So the question is, do you and I share a human nature? Well, anomalous is going to say no. There's only two, there's two humans, hmm. but there's not a nature that they share like Interesting. that. Interesting. Okay. So whereas a, a realist would say there is something that we share in common regarding a human nature. Um, and then a, a conceptualist would say, yeah, but we can talk about a, a universal in the mind, but it's not really an essence in the thing. Um, okay, so so you got the realist, the nominalist, and the conceptualist. Those are are those an exhaust, uh, roughly not exhaustive. Those are kind of probably the top three. I would great. say okay, you got right. the the universals exist extramentally, um, and that, that that would be a form of of extreme realism or platonic realism. Then you've got a moderate realist position, which is what I hold to, mm -hmm. which is that, yeah, these universals do exist, and there are essences, uh, but the, the the essences are in the thing. The forms are, quote-unquote, in the thing, like like Aristotle would hold to. He's, he was Plato's student okay. and rejected the heavenly forms and said that, well, they're not transcendent. They're imminent in us. Okay. And so that would be a more moderate realist position where, where we think that there is a uni there is a an essence to, say, humanity, uh, and there is a universal a little bit different from Plato, or, I mean, Aristotle to, to Thomas Aquinas is more my, more my position, which is uh, there is a universal that exists in the mind as an abstraction mm -hmm. of things. And then the nominalist says there, there's not even a, a universal or an essence. Where So the, then the conceptualist would say there is a universal, but it's only in the mind. There's nothing that we share uh, okay. in, in common in, in that regard. So there's different levels, different forms, different, that's a bad word to use here, there's different uh, <laughs> uh, aspects of each theory, really. Right. No, I, that, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, you get into, I mean, even in physics, you think, okay, there's this discipline, and then there's different ways to think right, about right. it. So that, that, that's not surprising. I guess one of the questions I have, you know, and this isn't direct, this isn't going at the how does that interact with God part directly, but, uh, you know, there's kind of a, one of the snarky comments that I thought was creative in the way it said. And then as I thought about it, I'm like, what does that mean? It's, you know, there are people say, okay, you know, you've got your God that tells you how to do right or wrong. Well, I just know how to not murder. I don't need a God to tell me that. <laughs> okay. Right. But it seems to weigh in on these. It's like, okay, what does that mean? If I, if I just know that there is, that murder is wrong, how do we just know that? Cause that does seem to hit on this. Is murder actually wrong? Is it something we've just decided was wrong right. or is there's how how is a interacting with this right. abstract so, form again, type? So again, back thing. to Plato because as Whitehead said, everything just a foot on, on Plato after after him. He says, well, do, do the in his in his uh, milieu how we have polytheism is something is murder wrong because the gods say it's wrong, or is it wrong because in and of itself is wrong? They just kind of reckon. This became known as a Euthyphro dilemma. Okay. Well. Basically, today, there's a different views. There's, there's divine command theory in, in ethics and moral philosophy. There's natural law theory. So to answer your question, my view, uh, well, to kind of put it more in perspective, the, the, the issue is, does God just kind of do this by fiat? Right. Can he say that murder is, is, is now okay and that, and that any heinous thing is now okay? Right. Um, well, so the, so the this, problem— So this goes to Euthyphro's dilemma. Right. So that, the question is, is God arbitrary? Or is he subservient to something else out there? Kind of the same thing as these abstract objects. Right. Is there something about them that, that determines what God can and cannot determine to be good? So I think the good answer to this is to say that God didn't have to create, so he was arbitrary in that regard. Okay. Um, in, or free in that regard. But since he created human beings, he created human beings with a specific nature mm -hmm. such that certain actions promote our good and certain actions prohibit our good or, or cause harm and evil. Right, okay. So uh, because we have the certain nature that we do, one person killing somebody else in, in uh, cold blood or in some unjustified way would be considered murder. 
uh, would be taking that person's life, which is an, an evil, right. and that would be wrong, regardless of what, what someone says about it. So, for example, if, if a lion were to break in here and, and, and destroy us, uh, we wouldn't normally say that, that the lion committed murder. He would, he would have killed us, and that would be an evil, but it wouldn't be a moral evil on the part of the lion mm-hmm. because of what he is. But if, if somebody came in here and just started just, you know, killing us, then that would be murder because of the kind of being that is doing a rational moral agent. Okay. So our moral fabric is, is based in and intertwined with the kinds of beings that we are. Likewise, if we just went out and shot a deer, that's not seen as murder because of the kind of thing that a deer is. Mm-hmm. So that moral nature is really grounded in the kind of being that we are that God decided to create. You know, that's interesting because I look at how it seems where we're thinking about things, and there does seem to be this, you know, general consensus, okay, murder is wrong, but there is kind of moving towards when you kill an animal that, I don't know how many people would say that's murder, but it kind of has that flavor to it in the way we're talking about in our society. Yeah, and depending on your worldview, so for example, if you hold more to a pantheistic worldview Mm -hmm. where everything is equal, Whereas you know the 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 um, the, uh, the environment is, has equal footing as humans mm-hmm. animals do, and yeah, people might might see that in terms right. of in terms of you kill an animal. You're, you, in fact, I was on a podcast once for someone who held this held this view, where if you if you kill an animal, that actually is murder, or if an animal kills another animal, that's also murder. You know, it's just interesting because that's one of these areas, and I've tried to figure out how to articulate this. In a, in a different project I'm working on. But there are these things that we seem to get, well, uh, duh, of course that's right. I mean, you'll murder, of course that's <laughs> right, wrong. Right, right. Or, you know, child abuse, of course that's wrong. And it's so prevalent of a thought in our society that it seems self-evident, if you will. Right. But ultimately, the reason why, or, or in our society, why it's wrong, it's, it's, it's got its predicate or its foundation in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Yeah, yeah. And so people have adopted that. Of course, that's right, but they don't understand the grounding of it. And as you look back through history, child abuse wasn't seen as such a obviously type wrong thing. I mean, you know, you could, you know, even in the Roman times, you could, well, okay, we don't want this child. You just leave him outside the door. Things that yeah. we would see as abhorrent were accepted common practice. And so, how do you help people, or how how do we? encourage people to see that not only the self-obvious nature, if you will, but the grounding of it is important because we live in this society that's grounded on Judeo-Christian values. We're moving away from that, but you kind of ask the question, okay, so where's that going to lead? Yeah. I guess the the grounding issue for somebody who holds to the the view that I hold to would be that humans have intrinsic Mm self-worth. And so we're going to have to explain that, yeah, as we want to maintain worth in the environment or in animals, and that's fine, uh, that that humans are radically different kinds of beings, not only by degree, which is what evolutionists might say, mm-hmm. but also by by kind. Okay. Or they, they, they differ not, not just by, by degree, but just by what they are, um, the kind of thing that, that they, that they mm-hmm. just are. So... We have to, first of all, I, I think, not class humans alongside other other things in the animal kingdom or, or plant kingdom or anything else around us, but recognize that there's something uniquely different okay. about, about humans. And I think that most people around the world, there are obviously uh, objections or exceptions to this, but I think as a, as a general uh, rule, people have a basic sense of, of morality in terms of, well, it's, it's never right just to go around killing people. I mean, that mm-hmm. has happened. I mean, look at the Holocaust, right. look at different things. But we recognize that as that is a, a moral, outrageous thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we need to be careful as, as Christians to maintain the objectivity of, of, of truth objectivity of, of morality and what we happen to be as, as the kind of being that we are. Is that, is that getting at an answer to your question? It, it really does. Okay. I mean, it, yes, it does. And I think that's critically important. I, I think my question was more motivated to um, where you run into people who, you know, whether they have a naturalist worldview. Right. And they say, well, of course I know murder is wrong. And I, yeah. and I don't grant, I, I grant that, yes, they recognize that. My question is, in a worldview, a naturalist worldview, which doesn't have a form or a objective, any kind of nature, anything that yeah. would say yes, murder is wrong. Yeah. 
there to me that seems like there's a disconnect between what your worldview is saying and what you're saying. And I agree yeah. with what you're saying, but your worldview doesn't ground it. Oh, okay. Yeah. In a in a place where Judeo Christian world the worldview has been the foundation of a lot of things right. that works at right. some level. Right. If you just now go and say, all right, let's adopt a naturalist worldview. The idea that murder is wrong is eventually going to conflict with something else that impacts you more directly yeah, and murder becomes so. okay. That, yeah. How do we have that discussion? Because it seems hard to get past the, well, duh, murder is wrong, yeah. but that's ultimately Christian capital. Yeah. So most of the time, I, at least most, the majority of the time that I've, I've seen it, uh, even naturalists want to maintain there is something about morality that, that – even if it's just evolutionary based and it's utilitarian mm-hmm. or, or egoistic or something, that there's something about what we are where I don't want us to go around killing people or destroying people or hurting people. Yeah. There are exceptions to that. I've actually had conversations where someone says, yeah, rape isn't really wrong and, and murdering that person isn't wrong. It's just what our, our culture has kind of defined it in their own mm. sorts of parameters. So that, okay. that's, that's scary. Seems a little um, more consistent, though. It's consistent with their worldview. Yeah. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, Aristotle would say these kind of people, you either get it or you don't. So Aristotle was a naturalist himself, and he's, he would say you either understand morality or you don't. You really can't teach it. Interesting. So that's why we have laws. That's <laughs> okay. why we have laws. So if you if you break that, you're going to hopefully going to jail. Okay. And we want to keep that person in jail, not letting them get back out and repeating the same thing over and over again. So some people are just not going to get it. Interesting. I agree with Aristotle. People have psychological problems or or willful problems, and uh, they might may not want to follow the rules, as it were. But in terms of just the ideology behind it, mm-hmm. we need to point out that yeah, you may think that murder is wrong, and I'm glad that you do. But you don't have a really good reason for it, given this naturalistic. Uh, apart from just, we all want to get along, so we don't we don't destroy ourselves, kind uh-huh. of thing. Yeah, I, I just uh, you know this discussion of you know these things that we take to be universal, and how do you explain their universal nature is really, I think, an important discussion to have. And, you know, so I appreciate what you're bringing here. So if these, how do you end up getting universal statements? That don't end up impinging on God's aseity, if you okay. will. So in the, in the view that I hold, I, if we want to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 or murder is wrong or something like that. We would deny this extreme or ultra-realism of Plato. Okay. So we don't have these things that are ex- self-existing out there in the formed land or wherever you want to put them. And we would say that, yeah, murder is wrong when you have humans. Or that mm-hmm. statement is wrong, given the divine ideas of what what humans are. But without humans, there is no murder. Okay. So once we have humans, uh, we 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 can we can say, well, well now that we have have these these beings, humans, then one of them murdering someone else is wrong. Okay. So we ab- abstract that kind of notion from our experience of things. Now, you could someone say, well, is it always the case that murder is wrong? Well, if there's no humans, there's not going to be murder. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say, well. If there were humans, would murder be wrong? Yes, mm-hmm. based on, again, the assumed existence of the humans. Okay. But if there's no humans, there's, by definition, no, not, not really any kind of murder going on. So, so there's—how does that have the universality then? Because it seems almost conditional on something else, if you will. Or is that what you're saying, is that the idea of murder is wrong is conditional on there being humans who can actually yeah, do something that's, that's like that? Yeah, that's one it. take on it, is that, that these kinds of, of universals— um, whatever that happens to be, whether it's blackness or, or even with numbers, uh, the whole debate about are numbers real and whatever. So I would, I would take, for example, numbers to be um, something that we have in our minds that we can kind of abstract. So I have one microphone. Well, I can take that oneness of the microphone, multiply it, have what kind of operations in my mind about that. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to things like uh, universality of, of the nature of murder, the universality is applicable to the to the individual referent we're talking about. So murder would be wrong against humans. Okay. So you could say uh, murdering a human being is always wrong. All right. Yeah, and that is always wrong. Uh, but if you have no humans, then, then the question is, what are you talking about? It's kind of like in, in, mm. in linguistics, the, the question is, uh, is this statement true or false? Uh, the, the king of France is bald. Well, there is no king of France and in that, in that kind of regard that we normally think of one. So mm-hmm. it's not really true or false. It's just a statement that has no referent. Okay. Okay, so it, so it does acknowledge kind of the universality of the statement. Based but in the nature of the referent. Yeah. It doesn't anchor it in some sort of self-existent it's idea not existing, that's out right. there. It's not, it's not anchored in, in an abstract object uh, because all those things are ultimately going to be based on, on God's creative act. 
okay. and ultimately the divine ideas about what God can and cannot create. So, okay, so it does have, it has the similarity to the platonic forms and that there are things out there that transcend the material, physical stuff that we have, right. but those are not self-existent in and of their own entities. They're actually part of the mind of God, yeah, if, if you, you take will. this kind of neoplatonic view that Augustine held to, and, and it was traced mm-hmm. all the way through the Middle Ages and even until now, that, yeah, we have this kind of universal mm-hmm. notion of, of humanity and the divine idea. We also can abstract that from each other. So, like, we can have inductive experiences of mm-hmm. each other and say, well, okay, I know the nature of all these humans because I can, I know what they're like in my mind through my epistemological framework. Uh, can can abstract the universality that we all have in common by le- and leaving the individualistic matter behind. In okay. Is that induction somewhat limited by the extent to which you've seen? Uh, yeah. So, the more you <clears throat> have experienced, the, okay. the stronger the understanding becomes put in that in that regard. So so there may be this form that flows out of God's mind that we can increasingly approximate the more we see it in some sense if you uh, will. Some may, may say uh, that, approximate yeah. our understanding of yeah, I guess that's, yeah. that's what I mean. So some may, may say that. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll <go> all right. <laughs> well you know it's just an interesting idea because we live in this thing where it's like, you know, I mean scientific as scientists think, we think we're oh we're most of them, I would say, we're actually figuring out how the world actually works. Right, right. That there's an objectivity about that or a – it doesn't matter what you think. It matters how the world behaves, if you will. That's kind right. of a – it yeah. seems to me a fundamental premise of science. Exactly, yeah. Unless you're just saying I'm playing a fun game. And, I, and I've known scientists who, who take that approach. But now you've got the question, okay, so what does it mean for something to be – Real or true, if you will, and I think that's right, an interesting right. discussion. Uh, any final comments on that? Because that's a kind of a good transition to this. Some things I've thought about with quantum mechanics that are related oh, to sure, that. Oh, sure, yeah, no, go for it. Um, and you know, quantum mechanics is this weird. I, I struggle for terms <laughs> with it because I don't want to use the terms because these terms have specific meanings. But it's incredibly accurate in that if you say, "All right, here's my." mathematical equations that go along with quantum mechanics, and I do the calculations and say, uh, if I'm going to do this experiment, what result am I going to get? And I do the calculations carefully and precisely, and I come out and I get a number, and then I go out and make those measurements. Those two line up incredibly well, which is just, it's phenomenal. But there is this fundamental nature of quantum mechanics that is just so counter to the way we think, you and I think. Because, right. I, you know, I mean, I, I've got a pen here. I can put the pen down on the table. That pen, we're not looking at it, is still there. Right. And right. that pen is in that state that it's got an, uh, an objectiveness, a concreteness, a reality to it. And the only way to influence that pen is if things that are within its local light cone or its past light cone do th- – th- there are only certain things that can affect it, and it has this objective nature to it, right, if you right, will. Yeah. Now, we start playing around with quantum mechanics, and we talk about light. Now, we can talk about light as a photon. I, I work with photons because I work with X-rays and gamma rays, and when you're when I'm doing that, they are particles, if you will. Okay. So it comes in and it gives a signature in my detector. Ooh, there was a gamma ray. That's the language I use of it. Uh, you know, Hugh Ross, my colleague, works with worked with radio waves. There, you're detecting this wave. You know, it's it's this not a particle of light. It's this wave that comes out of light. Okay. And what's fascinating is there's this. Some experiments you do, you see light as a wave. Some experiments you do, you see light as a particle, and you ask the question, how can that be? You almost have these two different natures, if you will. And it's even far more fascinating than that in that not just light, because light, okay, that's a little ethereal, weird, but Mm -hmm. you have the electrons that we're made of or the neutrons. We can do experiments where we say, all right, let's take a beam of electrons and make it so that there's only one electron coming out at a time. And I put two slits out there. Now, if light goes through two slits, it will become, uh, you know, basically emanate a, a, a wave out there and you'll get this interference pattern. And if you th- throw electrons through this double slit one at a time, 
do nothing else, and then you put a detector on the background and say, all right, let's accumulate enough and see what sort of pattern we get, you're going to get the exact same interference pattern. <laughs> so electrons have this wave property, but you know, we think, okay, an electron, that's a particle. Right. So yeah. it's either going to go through this slit or through that slit, and so we should expect to see it in this line or this line. But when we just throw one through, it has this wave property that's to it. That's fascinating, yeah. And even more so, if we now say, all right, let's be a little creative. Can we measure which one it went through? Because then we'll say, all right, the moment you measure it, the interference pattern goes away. Okay, okay. And so what it's getting at is there is this seemingly contradictory way of looking at things that where things that we take for granted macroscopically, that this pin is actually there, that it exists whether we're looking at it, and that it's only affected by the things in its past light cone, one, something of that has got to give when we're dealing with quantum mechanics. And so, uh, you know, it, it, as it plays out in quantum mechanics, when you do calculations, you do calculations on this thing called the wave function. Now, to kind of simplify, let's just say you're dealing with something that can either be up or down. In every experiment we measure, we see that it's either up or down. Okay. That's the measurement we make is always that way. But the wave function, to properly describe it, it's actually in a superposition of up and down. You can't say it's either up or down. You actually have to have a term for down. You have to have a term for up. And you have to have a term for the mix of up okay. and down. Okay. And if you don't, you, you just get it wrong. But yet we only measure it in either up or down. So there's this question of is the wave function what's real or something else? Right. And because the wave function has this aspect that doesn't behave the way we do over here in our measurements. Right. Now, I don't know a lot about quantum mechanics or theories, but what I have heard is people trying to use stuff like this to try to argue that all of reality is in flux. There's nothing really objective about it. And everything is relative. So I'm, I'm guessing that's not exactly the case. But no. <laughs> well, well, and, and so this is the question. I mean, even that, that is a, a – there is some truth in what is being said there in that there's – you get down on small enough scales and that really is the case. That okay. we – what we measure or what we see or the nature of reality may depend on how we're observing it. Okay. But – we also have experiments that say, I no, that pen is there. I can measure it. Right, so right. that's one of the big questions is how do you get from this microscopic quantum scale to the macro uncertainty yeah. to mm -hmm. this we see things as there all the time. Okay. And, and what I find interesting in this discussion is that it just kind of raises the question, what is reality? What's really true? Mm -hmm. right. And – you know, I've just been fascinated because one of the ways you can do these calculations of the electron going through and, and getting the interference pattern is you say, all right, let's do the – to do the calculations of this, let's assume or do the calculation for the electron having gone every single trajectory. And when you do the calculations and add them up, you get the right answer. Hmm. Now – in quantum mechanics, you can say, all right, that's the calculation I did. What's the reality behind that? And some will say, oh, that means that every possible world exists. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this yeah. is kind of the many worlds interpretation, right, right. which, again, you know, just a little bit of background, things that I find fascinating about quantum mechanics is that when you talk about general relativity, nobody talks about, well, here's my formulation of general relativity or here's my <laughs> interpretation of general relativity because in general relativity, space – is this dynamic substance of some sort. The presence of matter or energy warps the fabric of space. The mechanism and the calculations are tied up together. Okay. Yep. In quantum mechanics, it could be that the wave function is real and it collapses, or it could be the many worlds, or, 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 or. <clears throat> you go look on the Wikipedia page, and I, you know, with all the caveats about Wikipedia, right, but there's right. this cool diagram that shows here's all the different interpretations of quantum mechanics, which our people are wrestling with. We make measurements, and it's always one or the other. Our calculations are done on these things where it's a superposition. What's really what's the nature of reality? Have you encountered anybody? This is a weird question. Uh, I am a philosopher, so I get asked weird, weird questions. <laughs> Great. So we had a, a, a philosopher of physics come in and speak at our school a number of years ago. 
And he wanted to say that given the nature of quantum reality, they, the, because things can share the same space, then therefore they're not really physical. His, his, hmm. his response to that was that there's nothing physical because everything is built of, of, of these things that are, can share the same space, mm-hmm. these photons and things. Uh, do you run into that a lot? It's called idealism in philosophy where everything's just an idea or immaterial. Like we're, it's just things in our mind. That's uh, he, a bizarre view. It's not normally – it's not a, probably a, a, a standard view. <laughs> but have you run into that in your in – your, I, I have it a of? lot and I, and I would say probably a lot of these discussions tend to be in – People who are very familiar with quantum mechanics, because yeah. I mean, I, I'm a physicist. Right. I've interacted with quantum mechanics on and off in various ways for 30 plus years now, and I still don't have a real good understanding of it. And so, <laughs> right. to really be able to explore that requires more knowledge than I have. And so, probably there's just a relatively small group of people that okay. could actually interact with that in a credible way. Right. I, okay. As as your statement about, you know, nature is who knows what based on that's the sort of thing you get by people who don't understand and can't interact with it credibly. Gotcha, gotcha. So even in my discussion here today, I've just trying to do make sure I say things it's credibly hard to, is hard. hard. Say, yeah, it is hard. Because is a, it's so counter to the way we think about things. Right. Is that a typical way of thinking about matter where you have these kind of particles that if they can share the same space like a photon or, or whatever these things are that therefore they're not material, or is that that a? I've been told that's not a very traditional view. That of is not. Is. I mean, I've always thought in my interaction working and most of the people I've talked to, I've not run across many who think, "Oh, matter isn't really there." That it's not a real physical okay. substance. In fact, that is part of a property. There are two different kinds of matter you have. One that you can't put into the same space as another one of the same kind, and another one that you can. Oh, okay. And that's why you get uh, you know the Pauli exclusion principle. If you had any chemistry, you dealt with that because you can't put two electrons in the same space. Okay. Whereas you've got uh, these weird things like Bose-Einstein and condensates, which people have gotten the Nobel Prize for in recent times, mm-hmm. where bosons you can put in the same state. So they okay. just behave differently. All right. okay. So I've never heard – or I mean, can't say I've never heard that. I haven't interacted or run across that sort of idea right, much right. amongst physicists. So I don't think it was a very common one. It probably isn't. Uh, <laughs> again, just because most physicists tend to look at things at least – people who have been trained over the last 30 years or more, like I have, that there's a ma- objective material world. We're right, trying to right. figure out how that obje- or objective material world operates. Okay. So, But in this discussion, so you've got this weird nature of quantum mechanics and where things can look differently depending on how you observe them. One, one of the things that you can show is that you, you one of two things doesn't get to work. You either the thing when you're not looking at it isn't in a definite state. It's not real, if you will. There's not, you, you have to give up realism or at least local realism. And that, you know, just like any good ph- philosophical or philosophical discussion, you have to be really careful how you define that. Exactly, but I, I'm right, being right. a little bit casual sure. in my terminology here. Yeah. Either if you're not looking at it, it's not there type thing. Okay. Or you have to give up causality in a different way, that, that the only thing that can affect that are things where light has been able to travel okay. to it. And so people have been asking this question, uh, and it's related to a, a paradox that was raised by, you know, it's the, it's the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox, where you can take photons and you say, all right, let's take these two photons or two, two particles, make them interact together so that they now share a, a state, have them move apart – and if I measure this, this particle over here, I can measure either the, like the position or the momentum. I can do either one of those. I can't do both at the same time. But because they're entangled, what I've measured here now tells me what the state of this one right. is over mm-hmm. here. Yeah, I've heard that one before. And I could measure either the, either the position or the momentum, which now raises the question, if I have a choice of which one I'm going to make, this over here has to have both of them well-defined if they're, if those are real properties okay. or not. And so this is, you know, are there hidden variables? Is quantum mechanics complete? There's a whole fascinating discussion about that. So I guess there's different interpretations of all this and what that means. People disagree like philosophers do and all this kind of stuff, or is it pretty black and white? It, it Well, no, it, it does, and that's why you've got okay. these different interpretations okay. of quantum mechanics. Some of them are locally real. Other ones aren't. Some okay. of them okay. have locality. Some don't, you know, and so it's, it's this – 
There's, there's general there's general agreement. There's a lot of thought about what's important and and what needs to happen. But at the end of the day, you've got this description of the fundamental reality, how you approach quantum mechanics mm-hmm. or your interpretation of quantum mechanics can be very there is some variability there, okay. but they all give the same measurements. Dumb question, I'm sure. Dumb yeah. question. But does this have anything to do with Schrodinger's cat, like how we observe uh, the cat and what our, our effects on it by observing it based on what you're saying with all this other stuff? Is that, is that wholly different? No, it, it is just very okay. much related okay. to that. Okay. So okay. the whole whole point of Schrodinger's cat experiment is there's a atom in there you know, that it either has decayed or it hasn't. And okay. you know you can do that. You know how how you get to that is one thing, but once it decays, it releases a poison. Once that poison is there, the cat dies. Well, quantum mechanically speaking, that atom until it decays is either it's in this mixture of up and down, or either decayed or not decayed. Okay. To properly describe that, we've got to use our wave function, and it's this superposition of decayed not decayed. Well, macroscopically speaking, if it's decayed. The cat is dead. If it hasn't decayed, the cat is alive. So if it's in this mixture so is of up cat. or down, so is the cat. Okay. Except that's the whole thing. We have some sort of aspect. Once we get up onto the macro scale, things are well defined. On right. the micro scale, they aren't. And so, okay. so it very much is related to this discussion. Okay. okay. Well, good. What, as dumb as I thought it was. <laughs> no. It, no. It's a good question. And, and part of the challenge in doing this, or, or trying to understand this, is that when you're dealing with quantum systems, uh, one of the challenges you have is that any sort of way you measure it dramatically tends to have pretty large consequences. So I want to measure Mm -hmm. the position of a particle very precisely. Well, to measure it precisely, I need to have photons with enough energy that allow me to probe those scales. Well, photons with that much energy, when they interact with the electron, scatter the electron. So by getting its position better, I've now, I have no idea what its momentum is afterwards. So these, this is, Again, just the weirdness of quantum <laughs> mechanics. But people are asking the question, are there things in quantum mechanics that allow you to get macro realism you know, th- related to this discussion, right, right. To, to get macro realism so that it still works even though you've got the quantum? And so there's this kind of cool experiment. Uh, they were able to make some superconducting qubits, and I'm not going to go into what that is, mm-hmm. but it's uh, – they were able to set up this experiment and test this inequality or basically you say, okay, we can't do on an, on an individual thing, so we've got to set up uh, ensembles of things. But they were able to show basically that in this system with these qubits, superconducting qubits, that you get quantum influences – of the scale of having, you know, something that's equivalent to having 100,000 or 10,000 to 100,000 electrons lined up. So not just an electron, but a macroscopic quantity of electrons. Okay. So nanoamps over, uh, you know, some, uh, I think they said 10 nanoseconds. So that's kind of macroscopic level quantities there. So it, it kind of says anything that says there's this macro realism at this level, it doesn't work. Oh, Okay. And to me, and, and I'm, uh, you're part of the discussion I want to have is when you as a philosopher understand that, okay, there is – there's this fundamental nature where at our – at, at the most basic level or the, the smallest scale of, of this universe when we're dealing with the quantum, that there seems to be this observer-dependent nature to reality. There seems to be something like that going on that – that electron isn't just there, right? Mm-hmm. Or its properties are not there until something has observed it. Whereas, you know, macroscopically, that's not the case. But it seems like in the in the fundamental nature of our universe, there's this inherent observer defi- drivenness to it, right? You know, I just part of me as a physicist, well, great, that's fine. Let's figure out what we can do with it. <laughs> but it does raise the question, what is the nature of reality? We right, tend right, to think right, right. things are very objective, universal, whatever, but at the very nature of reality, it seems like there's this unreal or anti-realist view of things. And that's kind of where I asked that question before, because I've heard people make these objections. Well, if, if by observing things, you necessarily change the behavior of what you're looking at. So if you look at Bart Ehrman's last page in his misquoting Jesus, okay, he says he came to debate or discuss, I think it was a debate at our school years ago, and he applies this actually to reading a text. 
So if you read a book, you as the observer are actually changing the meaning of the text by virtue of reading it. Now the question oh, really? is, well, the question is, well, how do you? The question that was asked by one of my professors, well, how do I know what your book says? Why write a book anyway if you can't read it? Which so it didn't go over very yeah, well okay. with, with him. <laughs> but people will take that kind of mentality that you just said about our, our observing something and how it changes it, and then apply it to all these kind of postmodern views of we can't know what reality really is, right. there's no objectivity, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, at least as a physicist, one of my responses is yes, it may be that's true when we're working down at the quantum level, and there may be bizarre instances where that shows up. But fundamentally, when I look at it, that pen, you know, at least one way I can look at it is, yes, every electron and every atom in there has this observer-dependent nature to it. Mm -hmm. But I put enough of them together, and it gives me my observing no longer impacts the parent. It's more stable. It, it, it's, okay. it's like the, the ensemble averages out the uncertainties, if you okay. will. Okay, okay. Um, so I can flip a coin. Yes, heads or tails, who knows? I flip a million coins. I can tell you very precisely exactly what it's going to look like. Okay. So that, that unknownness or that ambiguity or the chance or whatever you want to call it disappears in the ensemble. Okay. So at the macro world, yeah. we see <laughs> things and we, and, and we know what there is. But fundamentally, that's not the way reality is. Right. And, you know, I guess, you know, the things that pop into my mind is, you know, we were having a discussion not too long ago about God is, you know, is he in time, outside of time? And I tend to look at time as very fundamental, universal, if you will, but if I understand historically, Christians have thought of God as timeless. Right. You know, and so my macroscopic experience and reality of the world is that time is fundamental. You get down at the quantum level and time is less – it's less clear there. And, okay. Yeah, and maybe the ultimate reality is that there isn't time. That, or the, or you know, the, the largest concept of reality is that there is no time. But there's this region where I am that time is now a constraint, sure, not a sure. reflection of the way things are. Uh, is there any – is that philosophically a credible way of thinking or is that just a physicist thinking weird thoughts? Well, if you mean by ultimate reality uh, – because I think in our discussion we said that, 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 that God has created the spatial material universe, which would mm -hmm. include time obviously in the universe. So yeah, ultimately – um, and there's debates now. Historically, as you said, God has been seen to be timeless or eternal. And time is, is oftentimes defined differently in philosophy than it is in physics. So at least uh, historically, for example, Aristotle defined time as a measurement of change. Okay. So the, the earth goes around the sun, what we now call a year. So that would just there's not really uh, time per se. There's just change going on, like like an inch. Okay. There's no such thing as an inch in itself. There's an inch of something, mm -hmm. but there's not an actual inch besides maybe the you know the standard meter okay. or something like that. Right. So yes, if you apply that to God as the ultimate being, um, and I understand that that mm. time kind of changes based on physically even within how things are are moving and how all that plays mm -hmm. out in the physical realm. So generally speaking, I think so. If you if you mean that broader picture to mean to mean God. We have all kind of weird stuff with there. With like, how does angels then relate? Because angels aren't said, said uh, seem to be eternal like God, but not temporal either. They're kind of in this halfway right. house called every eternity, and, and it gets really fun there. <laughs> well, and, and to me, I mean, I, I I think the discussion of how do you deal with quantum mechanics. I mean, that's something I'm trying to dig in and get right, a better right. understanding so that I can talk more than just say, well, there's a lot of different interpretations. Sure, and, sure. But. What does seem to be true, scripturally speaking, is that there is this created realm, and it is not the ultimate reality. Right, it is right. a temporary one. Right. There's something bigger and more. And what that more is, I don't. You know, I mean, I think we're always going to have physical bodies, and so there's some aspect to which we measure time and you know experience time. Yeah. But we're now looking at these things that we think are, oh, this is the ultimate reality. And we realize, no, it's, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> that. Somebody asked the question, is this kind of a portal into seeing something beyond? And I, I think you got to be careful how you answer that. But right. the idea that what I take as the fundamental absolute reality, I have to be careful because even in this world, I see that what I perceive day to day doesn't necessarily tell me what the ultimate reality is. Sure, sure, yeah. And I, I think that seems to fit very comfortably in my theistic worldview yeah, and raises a lot of possibilities of, okay, not just I can speculate wildly on what it could be, but given that there is this possibility, 
what do I see in this world that informs me about it, and what do I see in Scripture that would inform right, me about right. that about other right. place? So, so someone like me who doesn't know all the quantum stuff, but but wants to learn more, not on a level that you do, because I'm not going to be a physicist. But what are some resources where I would go look and say, okay, I've, I've read Hawking's The Grand at least some of it. Uh, are there any sources that can kind of not dumb that down, but make it where it's someone like me can actually get some of it? What are, what are some some sources of that? That is, a, gr- that is a great question, and, you know, and and I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. Right. You know, we were having discussions about infinity, and I was worried, yeah, you know, yeah. talking about that with philosophers. And what I've found in that is that there's a part of it. It's like find resources by credible people, sure. and and okay. that's a little okay. bit of a challenge. Oh, really? <laughs> well, because you know, you go, you look at something on the web. You know, your you search, don't know you don't is, know who yeah, they yeah, are. You sure. ha- you got to evaluate credible, cr- find credible sources. But where you're going to sample the diversity of thought out there, because I can go look at the article by these people, and they have a certain picture of how quantum mechanics mm-hmm, works. Mm-hmm. I can understand what they say. I can get it down and say, okay, yes, I understand. But that may not be representative of what the physics community thinks. And so, so you've got to get something that samples the distribution okay. of that. We have counterpoints books in theology. I've seen some in your actual your own bookstore. Um, is there anything like that in, in your field where you have this, here's kind of like an anthology of the different views of how to interpret this, or is that not really out there? You know, there, there may be some of okay. that. Uh, I I am just kind of newly delving into quantum mechanics, and so I, ha- I am not sure. I know some of the players out there okay. and what their thoughts are. Honestly, the place I would start is just go look at, go look at a Wikipedia article, not because it's a authoritative source, but it, in general, I find where it describes science stuff, it does a pretty good job of describing okay. the science, good sources to go and to. it gives you sources to go okay. out and explore yeah. deeply sure. on those things. Okay. Uh, so that that would be lacking a more thorough bibliography. That's what I would, ex- okay. I would accept for that's now. Fair. So, well, I've really appreciated our time, Brian. Uh, thanks for your discussions about uh, forms and abstract <laughs> objects and stuff. And you know, I thank you. Want to thank you for joining us today on Star Cells and God. Want to encourage you to join our discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. We have new releases of Star Cells and God each Wednesday. They're available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Remember to share this video with a friend, go talk about it with them, and the more we have the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.